Well, please join me as we stand together to read this morning's sermon text from Acts chapter 2. Hope you have a Bible. If you don't have one with you today, you can use one of the chairback Bibles. It should be nearby in front of you. You'll find this morning's text on page 910. If you were with us last week in our continuing series of sermons through Acts chapter 2, you will remember, I'm sure, that Dr. Sinclair Ferguson was with us and he preached from Acts chapter 2. And he had told me many weeks ago when we were talking about the sequencing of sermons in this passage that he was going to deliver something of a overview approach to the chapter so I could come in after and speak about some more particulars. And I did thank him after last week's sermon, which was indeed such a blessing, but thanking him that you gave me more than enough meat left on the bone for us to chew. So what I want to do today is take us from verse 22 all the way through verse 41. For reasons I trust that will be clear in just a minute. But let me get us started by reading that text and then I'll pray for our time and And we'll begin. So hear now as the Lord speaks to you through his word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption You've made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had swore with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through your word, that your spirit illumines its truth to our minds, and we pray that even the spirit would open our hearts this day to behold wondrous things from your word, that you might be exalted in our lives, that we too might be cut to the heart, that your spirit too might quicken us unto salvation and the forgiveness of sins that's found in Jesus Christ alone. So do help us to hear as dying people knowing that we're never promised to hear another sermon, and for me to preach as a dying man, knowing that I'm never promised to preach another sermon. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Although, as I'm sure some of you know, soccer has defined most of my life, or much of my life. Uh, I grew up in a home that loved baseball. And so my earliest recollections of watching any athletic event on television was watching a baseball game. My earliest recollections of going to any sort of sporting event was going to a baseball game. And when I was growing up, there was a particular player in the majors at that time that I I remember was spoken of quite fondly and frequently in our home. He played for the Los Angeles Dodgers at that time. And it was said when he was in the minor league system of the Dodgers that people recognized quite quickly he had this rocket of an arm. Uh, But he didn't have the personality uh, necessary to turn that natural skill into an ace-like ability in the majors, as he was known for some degree of timidity and a degree of being scared. And so famed Dodger manager at the time, Tommy Lasorda, decided to give him a nickname, a nickname that was altogether antithetical to his actual personality, because if it was to live up to the nickname, well, then surely he was going to be able to have success in the major leagues, and so he nicknamed him Bulldog. And as years went by, this pitcher named Oral Hershiser lived up to the nickname and became one of the most tenacious competitors to take the mound in his generation. And the reason that I tell you that is because we turn our attention this morning in Acts chapter 2 to a man named Peter. And students, do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ gave him a nickname? That nickname was Rock. And kids, if you know anything about Peter's story in the Gospels, it would seem often, wouldn't it, that he had a hard time living up to his nickname? Uh, He would always say things that seemed so out of place, things that would get him into trouble that one recent preacher has called him the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. And you might remember it was on the night when Jesus was betrayed. It was there in the upper room that Jesus looked Peter in the face and said, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And Peter, as Peter is prone to do with this degree of confidence and courage, he says, Lord, I would go with you into prison and even to death. And the Lord says, but just a few hours time, Peter, you will deny me. Three times, a few hours pass by, and you find Christ's rock cowering before a tiny little girl, asking him if he knew Jesus Christ. We turn our attention this morning to what surely is, outside of our Lord Jesus' preaching, the greatest sermon ever uttered by a human being in Acts chapter 2, by none other than Peter. It seems like after so many weeks, months by this point, after having denied Jesus Christ before this little girl, you have him finally living up to his nickname. 
And you want to ask the question, we should want to ask the question, what changed? And why is it that Peter can now with such confidence and courage and conviction preach Christ on the day of Pentecost? Well, surely the answer has to be that he's encountered the resurrected Savior. He has received the poured out Holy Spirit into his heart. And it's the very spirit of that resurrected, exalted Savior that does make all the difference in Peter's life. And what I want you to see this morning is the resurrected Savior, the outpouring of His Spirit into ordinary hearts like yours and mine. It too makes all the difference. So we're giving our attention this morning in verses 22 through following to Peter's resurrection sermon. And what I want you to see from his resurrection sermon are three simple things about our Lord's resurrection. Things we'll get to in just a minute. But first, let's, let's make sure we set the scene here in the book of Acts. If you don't know exactly where we are in the story of Christ's continuing acts by his spirit and through his apostles. Uh, we saw a few weeks ago, it was the beginning of chapter 1, wasn't it, that Jesus told his apostles that they were to stay in Jerusalem. He said, you know, stay there. Because in time, not far from now, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out from on high. And so the disciples and those that were with them, they, they gathered up into this upper room. Where we're told about 120 people were there. And they prayed. And we saw that they appointed a new apostle to take the place of the traitor Judas Iscariot. And as this is going on, the Feast of Pentecost is coming, meaning thousands upon thousands are coming into Jerusalem for the annual festival commanded in the Old Testament. And then if you just glance further up to chapter 2, verse 4, in fulfillment of the Father and Son's promise, the Holy Spirit falls upon all those that were gathered, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it was these utterances that burst forth from the apostles. If you just scan through the next few verses, we find listed no less than 15 different people groups hearing the gospel on that morning, saying, how do these men speak in our tongue? What is exactly going on? Which is why you'll see in verse 12, some of them said, what does this mean? But some of them mocked, saying, well, they're just drunk with new wine. And it's at that moment that Peter, Christ's rock, he steps up, doesn't he, in verse 14. And what he begins by saying in this sermon about Jesus Christ is, Brothers, make sure you understand what is happening. We are not drunk as you might suppose. After all, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. We've just had breakfast. Something else is going on. It was about 50 years ago that a well-known New Testament scholar named F.F. Bruce, he published a book that was called This Is That which was subtitled, New Testament Development of Some Old Testament Themes or Texts. And you, you might recall from last week that Peter goes on to say there, doesn't he, in verse 14 and following, this is that. Uh, what you are seeing here at Pentecost, what you are hearing here at Pentecost, is none other than the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied so long ago in Joel chapter 2. Something that finds a summary, notice verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, as Peter begins now really his sermon, he's just said, this is that. Well, what you find in verse 22 and following is, in many ways, it was, it's Peter's exposition 
of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, who is the name of the Lord? So the first thing I want you to see about Christ's resurrection is that his resurrection is a historical fact. Notice how Peter begins in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Some of you may know that the book of Acts often reads like this collection of sermons. Something like 25% of the book is nothing more than a declaration, a defense, or a discourse of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because he's told them, right before he ascended into heaven, you are to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. That's your business, to go about preaching in the first action of the new covenant church. We might even say the first ministry in the new covenant is nothing more than a sermon about a savior. It reminds us what one old teacher of preachers said, a sermon which does not in some way contain Christ's salvation cannot with any propriety be called a gospel sermon. It may be so impressive as to awaken deep interest or so beautiful as to please or even such of a high moral tone as to cultivate and refine, but it is not the gospel for the publishing of which all preaching was appointed That's exactly, isn't it, what Peter is doing here. This is a sermon that's nothing more than the gospel that's found in a Savior who died, but didn't stay dead. Because, of course, you see in verse 23, it's no plan B. It's no accident that Jesus Christ was crucified. This is according to the definite knowledge, the plan predestined of God from eternity past. But you see what we're told in verse 24. God raised him up. Loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then what you see is in the next few verses, he goes on to quote from Psalm 16 that we sang earlier. Give comment on how Psalm 16 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Again saying, this is that. It was not possible for the Holy One of God to see corruption. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical Fact, as what Peter says. And it's a historical fact. Certainly it's, a, it's truth that an unbelieving world finds most unbelievable. It's an historical fact that so singularly separates Christianity from all other religions in the world, doesn't it? You can think of other cults, other religions, other faiths, and they're not looking, are they, to a lord or a leader who died and was raised again. But Christians know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the citadel of our faith. That without the resurrection, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that it's pointless for me to preach. It's pointless for you to have faith. You're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness possible if Christ hadn't been raised. But what Peter is saying is not only has he been raised, it was not possible for him to be held down. Well, Why? Well, sin had no wages. He couldn't pay. Death had no claim on him that he couldn't meet. And so it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is not fantastic fiction, but a historical fact. And I don't know if you're in the room today, if you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is almost too unbelievable to be true. Uh, I certainly can understand that at one level, but at another level, you need to know it is truth. 
that brings you into a relationship with the Savior, if you cling to the resurrected King, that you'll find this Savior is more unbelievably good than you can possibly imagine. That his salvation is more unbelievably wonderful than you could ever possibly fathom. Because consider how Christ's resurrection changes everything. Because he's been raised, dead hearts can be made alive. Because he's been raised, people who were once confined to sin no longer found themselves shackled to that sin. Because he's been raised, if the Lord tarries and your body is one day put into the grave, the New Testament can say it's nothing more than you are just going to sleep. Because when the Lord returns, what will he bring? But those very bodies, now raised imperishable, to live with him for all eternity, seeing the king in all the fullness of his glory and beauty from everlasting to everlasting. His resurrection is a historical fact. I want you to see, number two, his resurrection has theological significance. Look at verse 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up. And of all that, we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's as though what Peter is telling these people that some of whom were mocking and they were joking, saying they're just drunk with new wine, these crazy apostles at 9 a.m. in the morning. He said, no, what you are seeing, what you are hearing, has theological significance. Now, what is that theological significance? Well, of course, children, you might remember this story in the Gospels where Jesus is sitting with his disciples there in the upper room on the night when he was betrayed, and he says he's about ready to depart from them. Soon he's going to leave them. He says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And as I'm sure many of you can sympathize with, the disciples were finding that information not terribly encouraging, not terribly confidence building. But Jesus goes on to say by the end of his upper room discourse, what does he say? But it's actually to your advantage that I go. Because if I go, then the comforter will be poured out from on high. If I go, the helper will come to you. This helper that will lead you into all truth. This helper that will glorify me. This helper that will guarantee your commission will be one to which you are obedient. So you can imagine, can't you, even just strictly speaking, for the apostles there at Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit has now fallen upon them, tongues of fire dancing over their heads, speaking sermons of gospel truth. And languages they never spoken before. What do they know? But Jesus Christ has indeed not only risen from the dead, but he's risen to the Father's right hand, and it's there sitting down at the Father's right hand in rule and power that now he has been faithful to his promise to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people. The new age has genuinely dawned. New creation is now here because the Spirit is here. But we know also, don't we, from other places in the New Testament that Christ's resurrection has theological significance insofar as it brings about his vindication. And it's his vindication that can bring forth our vindication, meaning justification, being declared right before God because he was declared right in his resurrection. It has theological significance because you see in verse 34 and 35, he again quotes from the Old Testament, this time Psalm 110 verse 1, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he declares, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. 
you know, I suppose it's true that we could therefore say that the resurrection has not only theological significance, but it does have political significance. Do you see that in verse 36? He is Lord. There are God-ordained and God-appointed servants in the world today that we call presidents and prime ministers, monarchs and magistrates. But there is one Lord. He rules over every nation, over every people. Therefore, what that text tells us is he rules over every heart in the room today. You, know, you might have grown up in a church tradition that would often, in gospel sermons, exhort you as a hearer of Jesus Christ to make him Lord of your heart. Now, what you need to know from this Pentecost sermon is he already is Lord of your heart. The question is, what leads to our third section? The resurrection demands a personal response. I wonder if any of you know the name of Eustace Scrub. It's an interesting name and a name that many of you, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, would know. He first shows up in literature in the volume, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And if you know anything about Eustace Scrub and that book in the early pages and early chapters, we figure out that he's nothing more than this naughty, greedy little boy. Uh, to such a degree that he eventually becomes a dragon in the book. And he's desperate to find his dragon skin and scales depart and be done away with, but there's nothing he can do to fix his problem of being a dragon. The only thing that will fix the problem of him being a dragon is the great Lion King Aslan coming and scraping with his bared claw those dragon scales off. And Aslan does exactly that. And eventually Eustace is recounting the story to his cousins, and he says something like, it was the worst thing I've ever felt that claw tearing into me. But the only thing that I was, only thing that made me able to endure was the fact that it was also the most pleasurable thing I've ever felt. And it's as though, isn't it, there at the day of Pentecost that Christ is sticking his claws into the hearts of Peter's hearers. If we look at verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles heard these men ask, brothers, what shall we do? You can ask your elders and deacons, your, your pastors that uh, would tell you that ne'er does a week pass by in their ordinary ministry here at Redeemer where they don't get lots of questions. And that's an okay thing for pastors and shepherds and elders and deacons while well, they're given to shepherd and serve in a way that we answer lots of questions. Uh, but I do hope that you might add this to your ordinary prayer list, that you might scribble it into your prayer journal, that it would be increasingly common because of our ministry for Jesus Christ to the local communities that are near us, that we might more often hear questions like, what must I do to be saved? What shall I do in light of what I've heard? And what does Peter say? But simply notice what we're told in verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Uh, children, I hope you know what repent means. Uh, maybe your parents have 
trained you in a short little catechism that asks what is repentance and you might be able to say, well, it means to be sorry for sin, to hate it and forsake it because it's displeasing to God. You might know that the very word itself has the idea of turning within it. It's a turning, it's a changing of the mind that a life that was once lived turned towards sin and Satan as now that as a life lived turned towards the Savior and a new obedience, obedience that no doubt includes baptism here. In the same way that circumcision in the Old Testament was this mark of allegiance, now the sign and seal of the new covenant baptism is the mark of allegiance to Jesus Christ. It depicts that which the gospel promises, doesn't it, in Christ Jesus, that as surely as waters fall over the person being baptized, so sure is God's promise to wash away their sin as they look to Jesus Christ. And as they come to Jesus Christ, in faith, and that's surely significant for us Presbyterians to recognize. Even verse 39 tells us these gospel promises and even commands still go to covenant homes. You see verse 39, for this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But I guess I would only say at this point in these simple exhortations from Peter in verse 38 and 39, you see that the simple gospel response, this resurrection that demands a personal response is nothing other than repentance for the remission of sins. That's the way Luke declares it in his first volume, Luke chapter 24. Repentance for the remission of sins. And we want to take encouragement even for our ministry here as a local church that all of us that are preaching the gospel, all of these, those of you that are aspiring to preach the gospel, parents as you're declaring the gospel to your children, don't overcomplicate it. Don't make it something that it is not. It's the good news of salvation found in the name of Jesus Christ and you must repent for the remission of your sins. It is very much okay for us as a church ministry to be like that pitcher that only has one pitch that guitar player that only knows one chord, that painter that only knows one technique, for we have one message, don't we? A Savior for sinners, a King who died, who is resurrected, who rose to the Father's right hand and has now poured out His Holy Spirit upon all people, the Holy Spirit that you receive as you repent and look to Jesus Christ. This is Peter's resurrection sermon, a resurrection that's a historical fact has theological significance and it indeed demands your personal response. Maybe you can think back in to times in your life previously where someone has said something to you. It could be good, it could be bad. A phrase maybe or a simple sentence that you can't unhear. I've had that conversation actually with a number of people just in the last few days speaking about sometimes hearing something that you can never unhear. And don't you think for all of those people gathered there at the day of Pentecost, what they were hearing from Peter's preaching was something that they couldn't unhear, something that must have stuck to them, something that genuinely convicted them as the Spirit cut them to the quick. And so all I want to do as we begin to close is see if I can turn the text in two more simple ways that the Spirit might... Likewise, cut your heart to the quick when it comes to hearing this news of a resurrected king. So first of all, I want you to see that encountering the resurrected king means confrontation. 
Doesn't it mean confrontation? You know, if you went through this sermon later on this afternoon and just circled all the times that he uses the second person pronoun, you. You might be surprised how often you are in view of this sermon. Right? Because notice what he says. Look again at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Look again at verse 36. That all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You need salvation, Peter says, from that sin. And no doubt all of you sit in here in the room today and you too need salvation from your sin. Whatever it may be. That when you come to this news of a resurrected king, it's no neutral encounter. It's always something that confronts you where you are. So some of you might need the confrontation of the historical fact of the resurrection. Some of you might need the confrontation of the theological significance. That he has been raised and so death and sin no longer have dominion over you. So why do you keep giving yourself over to that secret sin? Or maybe you need the confrontation that Maybe you realize for the first time today you haven't actually repented of your sin and received the Holy Spirit. Encountering the resurrection Christ well, it means, of course, a confrontation, but it also means separation. Finally, it means separation. Did you see in verse 40 that Luke tells us that, that Peter continued to exhort this great crowd with, with many other words. And I hope that you would be like me, that you'd be almost desperate to know, well, what were the words that he used? I mean, as a preacher, you know, how many more this is that did he give the people on that day? What exactly did he declare to the people that we might need to know as Christ's people, as his faithful followers? But he does tell us one thing, one final thing that Peter said. You see the end of verse 40, save yourselves. From this crooked generation. That coming to the resurrected king always means separation. Detachment from this world's rejection of Christ. In his truth. Identification with the Savior and his people. For judgment was coming upon that wicked generation. You must separate yourself. That you might be saved. And you do know don't you. God's judgment is falling upon many in this generation. Have you too separated yourself with faith and repentance. It's an amazing day, wasn't it? Something of a cataclysmic revival fell, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And I do hope that you might not leave here today without looking to this resurrected king for the life that he alone can give, that you too might be added to the number. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are grateful that you have given to us the good news, the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us this day by your Spirit that we might know what it means to find salvation in his name. For it's only in the name of Jesus Christ that anyone can be forgiven. We thank you that he was raised for our justification. We thank you that he rose to your right hand and has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. A spirit that alone brings illumination, forgiveness of sins, regeneration, and brings us into eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.